Hello and welcome to the TES News Podcast. My name is Eleanor Busby and today I'm joined by William Stewart. Hello, William. Hello. John Severs. Hello, John. Hello. And Martin George. Hello, Martin. Hi. It's been a very busy week. Definitely the start of term has begun and the DfE has announced many things this week, haven't they? Including funding and primary assessment announcements, which are all on our website. But amidst this very busy week, we've also got an exclusive interview with Justine Greening, the Education Secretary. Martin, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what her key messages were during that interview? Yeah, yeah, it was really good. Um, I think it's her first sort of major interview for the school year. Um, and it's pretty wide ranging, the things we talked about. So funding obviously came up. Um, I think one of the things teachers will be interested in is they're talking about teachers' pay. So it was only, what, a couple of months ago she approved a 1% cap on their pay this year. Um, the government now are looking to probably lift the pay cap and she's saying she wants teachers' pays to be competitive, um, basically, to try and help with recruitment and retention. So that's probably a positive sign for a lot of teachers. Um, I guess a bit of you thinking, why didn't you say that four months ago? But um, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and she actually acknowledged that when she made that 1% decision, you know, the, the committee that recommended it did warn there were real risks with that, that it could still cause problems with recruitment and retention. And mm -hmm. she acknowledged that that was the case. Um, so I think you know, she's admitting the problems there now, and we might actually see some movement sure. in terms of the pay cap. I think the government has to admit they've got a bit of a problem with, with teacher recruitment and retention with the National Audit Office report that's come out yeah so, especially in yeah. secondary yeah that was yeah. the issue wasn't it secondary that's what they're worried about with the people numbers going up exactly um that it'll be much harder to to get teachers to stay in the profession and, it was and to recruit yeah it was a bit of a hole in their kind of defense that teaching numbers are going up that finally um secondary numbers are actually falling anyway sorry i'm, I'm distracting <laughs> <laughs> and then did she have any messages about multi-academy trusts and ceo pay as well well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because you've you got pay for teachers there and you've got pay for the chief execs way up there. And she had actually qu quite a tough message, actually, saying that, um, you know, some of these really big salaries we're seeing, she's got to be looking really, really closely at them and, and you know, saying they've got to be justified. Um, and if they're not justified, she's talking about pay restraint. Now, the most controversial salary, it's Sir Dan Moynihan, over £400,000 at the Harris Federation. And she actually basically said, he is worth it. You know, his schools do get good results. All the schools are good or outstanding. So that's fine. But I think the underlying message is if you're not performing, you know, the government's going to be taking a really, really close look at what you're paid. It's interesting she stopped short of threatening fines, though, isn't it? Which is what one of her, her, her own ministers has threatened with the universities. Exactly. VCs. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the thing there might be that there's a different sort of institutional setup for the universities and the office that regulates them. I think they probably have to introduce some new mechanism or change funding agreements to actually have the tools to do it. But, um, I mean, yeah, if they're not looking at restraining their pay in the next year or two, maybe they'll be you know, looking at ways to force them to do it. I mean, I mean, the technical details aside, I mean, I'd say that the case for doing something about if you're concerned about that kind of pay, the case for doing something about it amongst MAT CEOs must be bigger than university vice-chancellors. Because yeah. with universities, you can argue there's a global talent in, sorry, a global market in talent, and I don't think that's the case with with schools. I think that's right. So yeah, she basically based benchmarked CEO pay then. So if you have the same amount of schools as Dan Moynihan and you have the same Ofsted ratings, then you are, that CEO should be paid the same. It's kind that's of the logical question, question, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I doubt there'd be very many happy people if that is what happened. We suddenly had, you know, 20 CEOs all on 400,000. 
Um, it'd be hard to now she's come out and said that it'd be hard to suggest they shouldn't earn that amount of money yeah pay restraint could become pay inflation <laughs> yeah <laughs> why haven't I got Sir Dan's cash? yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. quite what she was um, you trying to see <laughs> imposed here I think it was interesting that she spoke to you about funding and then obviously we had this announcement um, on Wednesday um, or Thursday Thursday um, about funding and she said that she wasn't complacent about funding yeah it's a funny one this because I mean she she put in what extra 1.3 billion pounds for over the next two years back in July and this week she sort of confirmed how that will reach schools through the national funding formula and basically that money means that that per pupil funding is protected for two years but the, the money they lost in real terms before that the few years before that won't be restored to them um, so when she was talking to me about you know record levels of funding, yeah, it's a thing which head teachers and teachers hear endlessly from Nick Gibb and Lord Nash and Justin Greening. They kind of roll their eyes, um, and she said, "No, no, I'm not complacent about it. I would never be complacent about school funding." Um, but I think unions are saying, "Well, we're still some of that money we've already lost." Then, but you also got another important point out of her, which which she was saying the funding's not the be all and the end all, which I think many schools might be quite interested to hear well indeed indeed and and again something ministers have said before is that you know strategy matters so you look at scotland where there's a different party in government look at wales as a different party in government and they say that internationally you know the PISA benchmarkings they're they're not doing as well as england so she, she's arguing that well it's our strategy in england that means we're doing really well so yeah that's important as well as the money talk to union leaders, talk to head teachers, they'll say yeah. money is really, really important. Talk to heads using retired teachers for free. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And she didn't talk about primary assessment at the time, is that right? But um, No, she didn't. Yeah, but then she obviously made the announcement yesterday. Well, one um, of the many announcements. One of the many announcements yeah. that came in, in a short space of time that they will be getting rid of the Key Stage 1 SATs um, from 2023. Yeah, I think a lot of what was announced yesterday was was kind of what was expected mm. the the date i mean a lot of people have been asking on on twitter why 2023 and um our primary assessment um expert helen ward has written a very good blog that you can view on our website today but in it she explains that, that the reason is is because they're bringing the basically they can get rid of key stage one sats because they're going to bring in a baseline mm. but you have to have the baseline in place first and because the baseline i think 2020 um, no, no, I know when that oh, comes okay. in. I was just trying to think who's doing the baseline. But basically, the, the, the pupils taking the baseline, it will take until 2023 till they've fed through to kind right. of keep state. So, so that's, that's the reason for that kind of seemingly arbitrary year. Mm. But, um, yeah, but there's more, more tests as well. I mean, you were writing yeah. this, the story yesterday. Yeah, so although, you know, it was welcomed by the head teacher unions um, in general, um, the National Education Union are still unhappy with the fact that um, it was confirmed that a multiplication timetable test uh, check, even as they call it, will be introduced um, and that will take place in year four. Uh, we originally thought it was going to be in year six, um, which kind of means that they will have a test in year four, then they'll have a, the SATs in year six, and obviously they'll have the baseline in reception and phonics in year one. So there's still kind of che checks and testing going on throughout their primary um, experience. So I think that that's the concern that the unions, the teacher unions still feel like there's going to be a high stakes testing culture. Yeah. Um, even though they're getting rid of the key stage one test. I think the NHT are quite a lot happier, aren't they? Because they were mm. quite involved in in drawing up some of these but it's obviously going to be a big bone of contention for 
continuing really for, for a lot of other primary teachers. Yeah, definitely. And uh, John, can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on in your section? So, scripted lessons? Yeah, so the scripted lessons have been around for um, decades, uh, really. Uh, originally formed from um, some work by uh, Siegfried Engelman. And it's essentially a pre-planned lesson. At the extreme end, it's like a script. You read from it um, like an actor, if, if, if you will. And at the looser end, it's a scheme of work that you pretty much have to follow. Um, although the imposition of the script is differs some some people using them say you must use this some say you must use it if you're a teacher that's not getting the right results and some say here's some nice advice like a, a resource if you like and will hazel has done an investigation to see how widespread the use of these have become and he's found that over the last sort of well coinciding with the rise of the academy change really that they've become much more prevalent as uh, mats have tried to control, uh, well, control, um, ensure the quality across their chain of the teaching, and their argument is that this is like uh, th this is a moral duty. So if you have good practice in one of your schools, and you know you're getting the results, then that should be scripted for all your schools, so all children benefit from this effective way of working. Obviously, it's very controversial because. Uh, it could be argued you take away teacher autonomy that way and Dylan Williams quoted in the piece saying that it, it's a delicate balance because where you might improve uh, teachers that are struggling you're likely to lessen the impact of an, uh, a really good teacher because you're taking away their their individual autonomy in, in, way they in the way they work in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's controversial but it's growing and, and lots of people quoted in the piece uh, suggest that it, it's something that will continue to grow as it not only allows a mat more control over the classrooms in in their schools but also well the argument is that it reduces workload and um reduces misunderstandings in planning why what? not why not take it um one step further if you have scripts why why not have a hologram why not why not have a, yeah or and you know or problem. a video yeah, yeah and that's a lot we, cheaper and on twitter today they were discussing who's ultimately responsible for the failure in that sense if you've imposed a script on a teacher and that the children in that class don't get the results. Is it the writer of that script who is accountable for that, or is it the teacher for not delivering it properly? And but what does not delivering a script properly look like? It, it, there's a lot of problems there that I guess are going to be unpicked as, as this becomes more widespread. But you know, there's some very there's some people that are very keen on it, and uh, for various reasons. What so teachers as well? Te well, teachers, teachers academy. Uh, well, some of the academy people leading this suggest that teachers haven't been against it mm. and some of the most experienced teachers have actually embraced it but you know you look on twitter and look at the impact uh, the reaction to the story today and you see there's a there's a lot of animosity towards it too is it something that's also um sort of an international dimension to this i know in the developing world a lot of the really low cost private schools trying to you know educate people in uh, kenya and other places i mean bridge international they they yeah. use this method don't they i know they script definitely yeah, and uh, dylan says that he can see dylan williams says that he can see the use of it there because yeah. you're you know these teachers haven't had the training the, the argument here is that you spent three years well in some cases less than that but you know if you've got a, a training program that works why why do you need mm. to provide them with a script uh, yeah. and obviously there's a there's a financial element there where you can get unqualified teachers and TAs to teach lessons, it, or robots as well. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, if, if economy change it more and more autonomous, it seems to be that the, the logical, there's a big PR, mm. but if you're struggling to recruit teachers, then surely eventually that, that's what might happen. Mm. Mm. 
And you've also got an interesting piece about physics. Yes, so um, this is the editor's I'm special. Gonna let you I'm explain gonna, that one. <laughs> this is the editor's special, I'm going to call it. Um, <laughs> some researchers, uh, one in, two in Scotland and one in Canada, have looked at why uh, there are less female physics graduates mm -hmm. and why um, less female physics students at A-level. And they've decided that, uh, well, they've looked into it and found that the cause may be a boys' playful urination practices. Right. So essentially, they've worked it out, they've crunched the numbers, and they've said that <laughs> a boy will get, I'm going to, it's thousands of times, I can't find it in this piece now, but um, <laughs> they were going to the toilet an average of five times per day, and each time they get a chance to look at projectile motion. In reality, <laughs> they get to play with how forces work, and that visual representation of how that works feeds into their um, when they become to be taught physics properly for the first time in uh, when they're fourteen. So the, the initial syllabus at that stage is all about projectile motion. So the boys take to it like water, <laughs> and um, the, the girls are more confused by it because they haven't had that chance to see the the projectile motion in action. Um, I see. Yeah, it's an interesting it piece. It is an interesting one. I mean, obviously, they're really trying to get um, female students to take up physics, and um, this this may well it'll be interesting <laughs> to see if um, they try and experiment in any well, way. They argue that <laughs> um, the curriculum needs to be changed so that we don't introduce physics with something that's so biased towards male students. Okay. Uh, that's their that's their solution. They don't they don't suggest that some <laughs> techniques should be developed <laughs> so so females can see uh, projectile motion. Okay. Were you only good at physics? <laughs> I can't remember actually. I did triple science though, so maybe I was. I was terrible. I was just yeah, didn't work for me. Explain <laughs> <laughs> so much about your will. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. it's a fun piece and it's, it's, Moving certainly, on. it's certainly getting a reaction. <laughs> And uh, next week, we've got a piece on social mobility, yes, which is so actually Justine Greening's uh, favourite thing that, to talk that's about. That's her big theme. Yeah, yeah big indeed, theme. Indeed. Yeah, so the leading, uh, one of the leading education academics in the States, Frank Worrell, and one of the leading researchers into talent in the States, Jonathan Y, have written this piece, and they have looked at Theresa May's social mobility plans and said she's got the right idea. We should be tackling, uh, we should be targeting what they term the bright poor, um, to and pushing them on and he suggests that uh, her methodology is wrong he suggests that she uh, doesn't test kids enough that there should be more testing at more levels so that we can find out at what point these kids become talented academically and he also suggests that uh, we test the wrong thing that uh, there's no real test for spatial awareness and uh, spatial ability, sorry, and spatial ability is something that's high, got a higher representation in disadvantaged backgrounds. So it's it's an interesting piece. Yeah. Uh, it has fifty, I think, references, uh, of okay. academic references. So it's quite, it's it's uh, challenging, but very worthwhile read, I think. Okay, definitely one to look out for. Mm. Okay, well, I'll leave it there. That leaves me to say thank you to William, John, and Martin, and thank you for listening. And make sure you tune in next week.